Uh, I'm going to turn to Mark chapter 14, and I'm going to read verses 53 to 72 as we conclude Mark chapter 14 today. Jesus had just been betrayed and arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and now we pick things up in verse 53. Holy Scripture says, And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet not even about, yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, One of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus? But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is the Word of God, and it is for our good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank You for Your holy Word. You have spoken clearly to reveal the majesty and glory of Your Son. And Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts this morning illuminating this passage and showing us Jesus. 
communicating grace to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, it's a cold spring evening in April of perhaps 30 A.D., some say 30 A.D., some say 33 A.D. It's very early in the morning. In fact, it's probably just a little bit past midnight. And just two or three hours ago, Peter and the other disciples had concluded their Passover meal with the Lord in that large upper room where the Lord had taken bread and taken the cup and given them to his disciples as emblems of himself. That was just a couple hours ago. And after that, Jesus had had taken his disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane and particularly Peter, James, and John further up with him. And there the Lord Jesus poured out his heart before the Father and resolved to do the Father's will and to drink the bitter cup that was assigned to him. And then in verses 43 to 49, Jesus was betrayed by Judas, handed over to the contingent, the armed contingent that had come from the Jewish high council, and they arrested the Lord. And all of the disciples fled, verse 50. Now, evidently, Peter only fled a short distance. He, he, was, he was evidently torn, and he wanted to stay aware of what was happening with the Lord, and so he was following the Lord at a distance, observing and watching what would happen. And verse 53, they, they took Jesus to the house of the high priest. It must have been a somewhat impressive estate that the high priest had with buildings around and in the middle, a, 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 a courtyard. And so Jesus was taken into what must have been a, a large room in the high priest's house where the Jewish high council, the Jewish high court, called the Sanhedrin, consisting of the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, they were convened at just, again, just a little bit past midnight in order to put Jesus on trial. Meanwhile, there's another trial that's taking place. That's why we want to we look at these this passage all, all at the same time, because the trial for Jesus is being set up in verse 53, but the trial for Peter is being set up in verse 54. Peter comes into the courtyard, and he's, he's uh, warming himself there at the fire with other guards and servants of the religious council, and so the, the, the scene is set for these, for these two trials that are going to be taking place at, really, at the same time. So, in verses uh, 55 through 65, we have the, the trial of Jesus. 
says in verse 55 that the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. That, that tells us right, right off the bat that this is not an impartial trial. This, 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 the, the outcome is already determined in, in the minds of these several dozen men who make up this Jewish high court. In fact, at the beginning of chapter 14, we were told in the middle of verse 1, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and, and kill him. That was their clear intent. And, and yet, they themselves thought that they were doing what was right, and they wanted to have a credible trial with concrete evidence against the Lord. So they were seeking testimony. There's a very high standard for testimony within the context of, of Jewish law. There had to be multiple witnesses who agreed in detail on the charges at hand. And so that's what they were attempting to find agreed upon testimony by multiple witnesses that they could use to put Jesus to death on the basis of a, of a capital offense. But they found none, verse 55, and then verse 56 kind of explains that. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Now, I, 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 don't, I don't think that they weren't making things up out of whole cloth. They, they, were, they were taking bits and pieces of what Jesus had said or bits and pieces of what Jesus was reported to have said, and they're trying to, to build a case against the Lord. But they were, they were, these witnesses were unable to agree in detail on the particular allegations that were made. And as a, as a, as a little aside, I would say that it's very difficult to find agreed-upon testimony against, a, against an innocent man. I mean, j- just think about the, the prophet Daniel. Daniel was a sinner like us, but Daniel was, in fact, a good man who trusted the Lord and walked with God, and God favored him in the midst of these foreign empires, and Daniel rose into prominent positions under various kings. And, uh, you know, at one point, he, he, had the, he, he drew the envy of the other bureaucrats, and they, they, they tried to find something. They tried to find something wrong with Daniel that they could use against him, and they couldn't find anything. Daniel was above reproach. So they ended up having to cook up a law that was contrary to Daniel's religious practice in order to catch him. Daniel was a good man. Jesus is a perfect, perfect man. He always did and said what was right from his heart. Very difficult to find agreed-upon testimony regarding capital charges against the one holy perfect man who ever lived. But, but, they, but they were trying. He, he, had, 
He had rubbed them the wrong way. He had crossed their dearly held religious traditions, their flawed interpretations of of the law. And so, as we come to verses 57 to 58, we find one particular line of allegation that they made. It says that in verse 57, some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. Verse 58 is a great example of how they're trying to piece things together of things that Jesus had said. As we've been tracking along here in the Gospel of Mark, we know that in Mark chapter 11, Jesus pronounced judgment upon the temple. And in chapter 13, at the beginning of chapter 13, he stated very clearly that the temple was destined to become a a pile of rubble. So Jesus had foretold the destruction of the temple, but he never said, I will destroy it. He said that it would be destroyed. Also, the statement of verse 58 sounds a lot like John chapter 2, verse 19, where Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Do you hear the similarity? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But Jesus didn't say, I will destroy this temple. And in fact, the temple that he's talking about in John 2.19 wasn't the, the physical building, but was his own body. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But they're trying to, they're, they're trying to, to piece things together. Obviously, if someone really did threaten to destroy the most sacred building in a nation, that that would be a very serious offense. could, in fact, be a capital offense in some context. But they could... Their testimony did not agree. They they, they couldn't agree on the details and on the meaning of what Jesus had said. And so it it was a dead end. Verse 60, and the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent and made no answer. Where, where Where does your mind go when you hear that phrase? Does it go to Isaiah 53? Verse 7? He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus was not interested in getting into an argument or defending himself before these truth suppressors, before these corrupt men who had already made up their mind about him, that they wanted to destroy him. 
And besides that, Jesus was entrusting himself to his Father to vindicate him at the appointed time. So Jesus, for the, for the moment, remained silent. But then at the second half of verse 61, the high priest decided to ask Jesus a very pointed question. Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? The blessed is, is, a, is a, a reference to God as the blessed one. Now, we know, if we've been reading through the Gospel of Mark, we know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. In fact, how does the Gospel begin? The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As we are reading the Gospel, we know that this is who Jesus is, but of course they're, they're living this out historically in the moment, and Jesus was very veiled about his identity, lest, lest people misunderstand what he had come to do. So he wasn't, he, he, he wasn't out there telling people, I'm the Messiah, I'm God's Son, I stand in a special relationship to the Father. He, 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 was, he was much more subtle. We know that the Father spoke to Jesus when Jesus was baptized in chapter 1, verses 11. You are my beloved Son. We know that in chapter 5, when Jesus ministered to a demon-possessed man, that the man, really the demon, cried out, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Mark 5, 7. In, in the parable that Jesus told in Mark chapter 12, Jesus very subtly revealed that he was the beloved son of God by, he, really we understand that he was the beloved son of the vineyard owner in the parable, but really Jesus was, was not revealing his sonship nor his messiahship. He, he he had asked the disciples in Mark chapter 8, who do people say that I am? And then he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ. And Jesus immediately ordered them to silence and not to tell anyone. It wasn't the time. Jesus much preferred to speak of himself as the Son of Man, which is what he does here again in Mark chapter 14. But, but for whatever reasons, um, the, the, certainly the, the religious high council and the high priest knew that Jesus assumed an authority and a power that was very atypical. He spoke with authority. He had credible healings and, and miracles. He had a following. People in many cases, hung on his words. And so he asked the question, are you the Christ, the son of the blast? And Jesus said, verse 62, I am. Meaning, yes, I am the Christ, the son of the blast. And then immediately he talks about 
his exalted status as the Son of Man. It says, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This comes right out of the Old Testament. It comes out of Psalm 110 and Daniel chapter 7. We talked about Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14 when we looked at Mark chapter 13 verse 26. But both of these passages, Psalm 110 and Daniel 7, both of them talk about someone, namely in in Daniel 7, it's the Son of Man, and in Psalm 110, it's Adonai. They talk about this, this special someone who stands in an absolutely unique relationship to the Father, to Yahweh, to the Ancient of Days, and God Almighty entrusts universal sovereignty and authority and judgment to this Son of Man. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying, it, Jesus is saying that you will, even, even though I am here under trial by this religious tribunal, you need to understand that in due course you will see, you will know, And you will understand that I stand in an absolutely unique relationship to the Father and that He will entrust all authority, all sovereignty, all lordship, and all right of judgment over the entire universe. How would you like to tell that to a religious high court? The high priest immediately makes a statement by tearing his garments, and then he makes a literal statement by saying, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? Here's the, here's the deal. If you claim to be the one promised Messiah, the absolutely unique Son of Man, and Adonai, who is exalted at the right hand of God, who, who, is, who has come before the Ancient of Days on the clouds of heaven to receive sovereignty over all nations. If you make that claim, it is blasphemy unless it's a true claim. Do you understand? Because if it's not a true claim, then you, you, are, you are claiming that you have God's backing and you have God's commissioning and you have God's authorizing and that you, you represent God uniquely. And if that's not true, then you are blaspheming God. Of course, Jesus is speaking the truth, but his accusers do not believe him, and so they regard what he says as blasphemy, and at the end of verse 64, they all condemned him as deserving death. In the Old Testament, the sin of blasphemy was, in fact, to be punished by death, by stoning. Now, there was a particular problem here in the first century because even though the Sanhedrin were very powerful over Jewish religious life and political life. Nevertheless, their their political authority was not absolute. They were were under the overlordship of the Roman Empire. And except, except in very limited exceptions, 
the right of execution was reserved to the Roman political authorities. So they condemned him, condemned him as deserving death, and in short order, in chapter 15, they'll be, they'll be taking him over to Pontius Pilate for, the, for, for Rome to enact their decision. Notice, as we come to verse 65, that they treat Jesus with contempt. They, 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 they don't condemn him with tears. They don't condemn him with broken hearts. Contrast that with the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus came to Jerusalem in Luke chapter 19. And he looked over the city and he was about to speak the reality of judgment against the city and against the temple. And what did he do? He wept. He wept over the city. He proclaimed, proclaimed judgment with a, the, the heart of, of, of tenderness. But what came out of the religious leaders was, was scorn and contempt and vitriol, which is very typical of what is in the heart of sinful man. Isn't it remarkable that the Christ is scorned? The son of the blessed is condemned and treated as one who is cursed. The one who will sit at the right hand of power is weak, seemingly powerless. And the one who comes with the cloud of heavens, the one who, who possesses all heavenly glory, is treated with contempt and shame on earth. This is, this is the... This is the mystery of the gospel, that he who was rich became poor for our sakes, so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. Now, while this formal trial has been taking place in a large room in the high priest's house, below in the courtyard, another trial, an informal trial, but a trial nonetheless, was taking place the Apostle Peter. You know, G Jesus had said, if anyone would be my disciple, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me and must be willing to, to lose his life for Jesus' sake and for the Gospels, have to endure all kinds of, of of discomfort and shame in order to faithfully follow Jesus on the path of discipleship. But let's be honest, right now was not a very good time to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. It looked like the G that Jesus' movement was falling apart. And Peter was falling apart. No doubt he was very torn. He we know that he had really come to believe that Jesus was the Christ, that Jesus had the words of life. We know that Peter really had come to love the Lord, and yet he really didn't want to be uncomfortable or vulnerable or 
disrespected in this moment. He really, he really just kind of wanted to watch what was going on and he wanted to be left alone. But the world doesn't leave us alone. And in any case, we're called to bear witness. And so a servant girl of the high priest recognizes Peter as Peter is warming himself by the fire on this cold spring night and says in verse 67, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. You, you were with him. You're associated with him. You're one of his followers. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. I, I have no idea what you're talking about. And he went out into the gateway or the forecourt, perhaps to give himself a little space, away from the scrutiny, away from the observers who might recognize him. And the rooster crowed a first time, which just background noise, really. And the servant girl saw him, verse 69, and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. Apparently, those from Galilee had, had, a, had a particular accent that, that gave them away. Jesus was the man from Galilee, and his followers were from Galilee, and Peter spoke like a Galilean. Surely you are one of them. And at this point, Peter began to get violent in his denial, invoking a curse, swearing, upping the ante, insisting on the truthfulness of what he was about to say, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Now, I want to pause right there and go back to Mark chapter 13. In, in Mark chapter 13, verse 9, this is what Jesus said. <clears throat> he said, But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. I want to make two comments about those verses. First of all, Jesus himself is blazing the trail by living out this very reality right? He's been delivered over to the Jewish high council. He's begun to be beaten and mistreated, and he's about to stand before Governor Pilate. Standing firm in the truth, in fellowship with his Father and with the Spirit, trusting his Father, and if speaking, speaking only what is true and right. But Jesus calls his followers into this same kind of costly 
discipleship and suffering and bearing witness. And Peter and the other apostles are going to go through similar experiences. And, and, and here in Mark chapter 14, Peter is just, he, he gets a, a miniature preview and it's not going well. But notice, what did Jesus say in Mark 13, 9? Be on your guard. What did Jesus say in Mark chapter 13, verse 33? Be on guard, keep awake. What did Jesus say in verse 35? Therefore, stay awake. What did Jesus say in verse 37? And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. But what did Jesus, but what did Peter do? Jesus invited Peter and James and John to come with him into the Garden of Gethsemane and to watch and pray, to stay awake, to be on his guard, to be in fellowship with the Father and with the Spirit, to gain strength, to remain faithful under trial. But what did Peter do? He fell asleep, not once, not twice, but three times. You're supposed to have complete preparedness, thus the command to stay awake three times. But in fact, Peter had complete ill-preparedness, falling asleep three times, which sets the stage for a complete and utter failing in denying Jesus three times. Now, I want you to understand that Peter's Denial, even his violent denial of verse 71, was not the denial of a hard hearted man. It was the denial of a man who was anxious, afraid, scared, stubborn, lost his nerve. You know, we, 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 need to, we, need to, we need to identify with Peter without over-identifying with Peter. And here's what I mean. I, I, just, I, just, I just read, uh, I was reading a, a, a book about a missionary to Matthias and Keziah. And back in the 1940s, these, these 200 brave young Christians stood before their communist persecutors. And one by one, on the pain of death, stood firm and confessed their faith in Jesus and were subsequently beheaded. Remember, Peter did not have the Holy Spirit yet. Peter didn't receive the Holy Spirit until Acts chapter 2. Now, post-resurrection, every believer receives the Holy Spirit at the moment of conversion. So don't over-identify with Peter, but do identify with Peter in this way. What Peter did here represents what you and I will always do if we are depending on our own resources. If we're depending on our own resources, it won't be the Holy Spirit speaking through us. It will be us speaking in order to manage our fear and anxiety and discomfort. But no... Peter's denial was not the denial of a hard-hearted man, which becomes very evident in verse 72. Immediately, the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered. 
Do you, do you understand the grace of Jesus in preparing Peter for this moment? Jesus prepared Peter for this moment by telling him beforehand that he would deny him three times. And yet, he had already promised, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Jesus had told Peter about his failure ahead of time so that when it happened, he would remember that Jesus knew about it all along and thus to set in motion the process of repentance and restoration. Perhaps Peter remembered not only what Jesus had said to him before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Perhaps Peter also remembered his own self-confidence, right? Chapter 13, I'm sorry, chapter 14, verse 29, even though they all fall away, I will not. And then verse 31, he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Peter broke down and wept, thus showing us his, his, his tender heart for the Lord, his grief over his sin. And of course, the rest of the story will come in John chapter 21, when three times, three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my lambs. Now, as we're, as we're uh, finishing up here, what is the point of this passage? Many passages give us principles for living, and, that's, and that's, that's a very good thing. But this passage really isn't one of those. The, the, the heart of Christianity is fellowship with Jesus. And the heart of fellowship with Jesus is, is, is knowing and seeing and loving Jesus. And I want you to see Jesus clearly as we, in these final moments, I want you to see him as the one faithful witness. Do you see how Mark has unfolded this for us? In, in verses 55 to 59, what's going on? They're seeking testimony. False witnesses rise up. False witnesses rise up. And all they get are false, inadequate, or inconsistent testimony. And then finally, Jesus speaks the truth. And then what happens in verses 66 to 72? Peter is a false witness, not against Jesus, but he's a false witness about his relationship with Jesus. He doesn't just deny Jesus, he's lying. But what happens after Jesus, after, after Peter denies Jesus three times, after Peter lies three times, what do we get? What Jesus said before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Jesus is the one man who deserves life. He came rescuing the demon-possessed, healing the sick, raising the dead, feeding the hungry, forgiving sinners. 
but they all condemned him as deserving death. Jesus' face reflected the glory of his Father, and his mouth spoke gracious and life-giving words, but they spit on him and covered his face. Jesus' hands had touched the lowly ones and the leprous ones. With his hands, he had taken the bread and the cup and given them, given himself to his disciples. The bread represented his flesh that he gave for the life of the world. But the religious elites used their hands to strike him. And the guards received him with blows. And they mocked him, saying, prophesy, you know, as they're covering his face and hitting him. Who hit you? Tell us. You must know. You're so smart. They mock him as a messianic pretender and as a false prophet. And here's the thing. He had rightly prophesied this very moment. In Mark 8, 31, the Son of Man will suffer many things and be rejected by the high priests and the scribes and the elders. Jesus had foretold this very moment in the high priest's house, and he had foretold this very moment of what was happening in the courtyard in prophesying the spectacular fall of Peter. Heaven and earth will pass away, but his words will never pass away. And one day this Jesus re rejected and scorned by men but loved and vindicated by his Father will sit in judgment on every human being. As he said in Mark 8.38 For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And the Father's message to the universe is, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Love him. Trust him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son of God shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. John 3.36 Is he lovely and beautiful and trustworthy to you? Let's pray. Despised and rejected in the sight of men, but in your sight, Father, he is precious the beloved son, the choice cornerstone. I pray that you would raise our affections and our love and our trust in this Messiah, the Son of God, 
in whose name we pray. Amen.